The 21st Century Cures Act, which passed in 2016, was intended to accelerate medical product development by elevating digital research strategies and the use of real-world evidence. In 2021, U.S. legislators introduced the follow-up Cures 2.0 Act. The fundamental policy question underlying both pieces of legislation is how to accelerate discovery without jeopardizing safety. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Kushal Kadakia, a student at Harvard Medical School with a background in delivery system reform. Mr. Kadakia has co-authored a perspective article about modernizing the clinical research enterprise. Mr. Kadakia, could you start by describing the law that you refer to as Cures 1.0? What was the impetus behind that legislation, and what effects, positive or negative, has it had? Cures 1.0, or also known as the 21st Century Cures Act, was a bipartisan bill that passed in 2016. And it was really intended to try to accelerate medical product development through a number of strategies, including regulatory reforms, as well as investments in scientific research. So, for example, the law provided billions of dollars in new funding for initiatives such as the Cancer Moonshot, the Brain Initiative, Mental Health Services, the Opioid Epidemic, as well as others. But it also created new regulatory pathways, including a designation for regenerative medicine, the Breakthrough Medical Devices Program, and A real highlight of the law was calling for new regulatory guidance for something known as real-world evidence, which refers to evidence generated outside of the settings of a randomized clinical trial. The law has, in some ways, achieved its initial goal of really spurring more activity around these areas, including the development of new regulatory guidances, the launching of new research programs, and the initiation of some of these new regulatory pathways. However, the law has attracted some criticism in part for lowering pre-market evidence requirements and raising concerns that we might be approving products faster that may not have the same evidence for safety or effectiveness. And then what about Cures 2.0? What are the main provisions of that bill and how is it intended to build on the 2016 legislation? So Cures 2.0 has been introduced into Congress and it's currently being evaluated by legislators. And the impetus for this is twofold. The first is that there's clearly always more work to be done when it comes to biomedical research innovation. But in part as well, the recent COVID-19 pandemic has shown how critical a robust biomedical research enterprise is to the health of the healthcare system as well as the population. And so Cures 2.0 has several different provisions as well, some of which build on top of Cures 1.0, including calling for more action around some of the same areas for rural evidence, some of the same expedited approval pathways. Um, But the law also includes provisions that are pandemic-related, including funding for research into long COVID, for example. In your article, you draw a distinction between two approaches to supporting accelerated development, regulatory corridors and regulatory cornerstones. So what are those and what's the difference? We thought this was a helpful paradigm to really capture the way that regulatory reforms have been enacted over the past 20 to 30 years. And the goal is the same where everyone on all sides of this debate. Everyone is in agreement that we have so many different public health threats and there's a real need to accelerate scientific discovery so we can have new solutions faster to help patients improve clinical care. Now, historically, the way that we've tried to improve speed is by creating regulatory shortcuts. And these are through different pathways, which have many names, including accelerated approval, priority review, breakthrough designation. And the idea behind these pathways is to reduce the time required to approve new therapies, either by shortening the amount of time the FDA spends reviewing these products or by reducing the amount of evidence required to earn an initial marketing authorization. 
And these pathways have had important impacts. Uh, many very critical medications have been cleared via these pathways, offering benefits to patients and improvements in clinical care. At the same time, these pathways have raised concerns about whether these therapies that are approved very quickly actually generate long-term clinical benefits in confirmatory trials and whether these are appropriate uses of regulatory resources. In contrast, we wanted in our article to draw attention to this idea of regulatory cornerstones. Rather than thinking about how we create shortcuts in terms of the amount of time we take to review products, how can we think about improving the regulatory ecosystem as a whole to make it easier for researchers and clinicians to generate high-quality evidence for clinical products much faster? And so we believe some of the cornerstones that we can really invest in through legislation include improvements in data sharing, including um, also improvements in post-market monitoring to make sure that we are getting better answers about safety and effectiveness in a way that is more robust and can be done in a faster timeline, similar to some of the strategies that we saw deployed during the COVID-19 pandemic. So how, in fact, could lessons from the pandemic be incorporated into Cures 2.0? What went right during the scientific and regulatory response to COVID-19 and what shortcomings might we learn from? It is worth acknowledging that, you know, the pandemic is not over. And even today, on this day that we're reporting this podcast, there are still tens of thousands of new cases of the virus in the United States alone. But at the same time, this present moment we're in is only possible because of really tremendous achievements in science from the development of vaccines, therapeutics, and diagnostics on a timescale that is pretty unprecedented when we think about the modern area of clinical research. And a couple of things that we learned during COVID that are really applicable for beyond the pandemic are the importance of investing in innovative clinical trial designs, such as the uses of master protocols, adaptive designs, digital strategies, remote patient monitoring, and remote data collection. We also saw the importance of regulatory coordination across the government, really having good guidance about what regulators are expecting from products, having proactive decision-making by regulators such as CMS about how they will pay and cover these products when they're approved. That way, when the FDA makes a decision, there isn't a gap in trying to get those products to patients and consumers. Now, COVID hasn't been perfect, and the FDA themselves have remarked about how many of the trials launched during the pandemic haven't had the necessary rigor and trial design to make the observations generated from those trials very useful. And it's worth noting that while the response hasn't been perfect, there are still opportunities for improvement. But some of those lessons illustrate opportunities that we can channel for diseases and other research areas beyond just COVID-19. In another perspective article, Concato and Corrigan Curie outline the uses of real-world data and real-world evidence from the FDA standpoint. What do you think is the appropriate role for real-world evidence in product approval and post-marketing surveillance? Kinkata's article is really important because it reminds us that the developments in real-world evidence that we're seeing right now are in large part due to some recent regulatory reforms agencies are making. But the concept of real-world evidence itself is not new. We've long known that there's possibilities to use data outside of the clinical trial setting. It's just that it's much easier today because in the last 10 years, Across the U.S. healthcare system, there's been an enormous effort to adopt electronic health records, and this digitization of data has made it easier to use electronic sources in clinical trials and clinical research. And the author cites some very important examples of how the FDA is already using rural evidence and rural data in its own decision-making for different products, whether it's drugs or devices. At the same time, we're all in agreement that while rural evidence has an application, it is important that we maintain the rigor of this research and ensure that the underlying process for approving these products is robust independent of the data that we're using. 
So, for example, in the context of the law, Cures 2.0 calls for using real-world evidence in supporting pre-market authorization of products under some of these accelerated approval pathways. And one argument we make in our article is that while there certainly could be an application of these types of data and evidence for these pathways, we should first answer these a priori questions about whether these pathways are indeed robust, um, whether these designs of post-market conformatory studies are accurate, before we go further in terms of allowing new evidence. A second question, too, is whether our data systems are currently well-configured enough for us to be able to really use this evidence at scale. So, for example, a recent study in JAMA Network Open by Joseph Ross's team at Yale showed that if you were to try to use real-world evidence for some post-approval studies for products approved under accelerated approval, it may not currently be feasible just given the nature of some of the endpoints used in the studies or given the nature of data that we currently have available. And so there's a real need to make sure that we get better data systems that are more robust and better connected before we can use these kinds of evidence for regulatory decision-making on a broader scale than it's currently being used. And in our article, we outlined some different opportunities for improvement, whether it's administrative action to improve our data systems in the government or new regulatory guidance to improve harmonization across government agencies to make it easier for researchers to use this data um, for future product approval. Finally, you discuss in your article the importance of encouraging regulatory clarity and collaboration between the FDA and the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services on common evidence generation issues. Are there potential avenues for simplifying approval and coverage decisions without jeopardizing patient safety? This is a really important topic right now, especially in light of the ongoing discussion about the FDA's approval of a new Alzheimer's drug called aducanumab and then the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services decision to restrict coverage of that product to Medicare beneficiaries who are enrolled in a clinical trial. And it raises the question more broadly about how we can better harmonize processes between these two agencies. Because at the end of the day, when we have new medical products, our goal at the end of the day is to try to get these products to patients and make sure that they help improve their lives. And so there are ways to certainly improve coordination while respecting the different authorities and mandates for these agencies. One example that's already in practice is a program called Parallel Review, which CMS and FDA implemented together first in 2011 as a pilot and later in 2016 more formally, in which for medical devices, the manufacturers could choose to submit through this program and be able to engage both regulators at the same time. That way, instead of waiting for an FDA decision before then going to CMS for a CMS decision, they could try to start those processes earlier. It doesn't guarantee, of course, that they'll have a positive or negative decision either way, but rather helps improve alignment with regards to regulatory submissions, study designs, and other key considerations to try to reduce any obstacles in this process. So that is one example that we point to. At the same time, there are probably more strategies that CMS and the Medicare program might benefit from additional legislative support, for example, clarifying the scope of the coverage evidence development program or having authority to launch new payment models specifically for biomedical innovation to try to better link payment and coverage with evidence generation strategies more broadly. Thank you, Mr. Kadakia.